Welcome to Cradle, with me, Father Andrew Eben, to the podcast journeying through the various articles of the Creed, the fundamental statement of our Catholic faith. I thought I would begin this week by telling you about my daily walk. I live in a rural parish, and one of the privileges of living here is that I get to take my daily walk in the countryside. Now, the church here is on relatively high ground. I say relatively because this is Norfolk, after all. It's not the Peak District or the Cairngorms. Uh, But if I walk across the valley, across the fields, and look back, I can still see how to get home. The church doesn't have a tower, but there are two poplar trees, very tall, on the church grounds, and even two miles away, I can look back and see those poplars. It's hard to get lost. Why am I sharing this with you? Well, this week we talk about that article of the Creed dedicated to the four marks of the church. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The four marks of the church. In Latin we call them note ecclesiae or attributor ecclesiae, notes or attributes. But in English we have this this lovely Saxon word, mark, the marks of the church, which, if you think about it, is the same word we use for an object marking a boundary or some geographical location, so landmark, something that shows you where you are and that you're in the right place, rather like our poplars here. So the four marks of the church are really ways of answering this question. How do you know you're going to the right church. And we have four of these landmarks or waypoints to guide us, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. So we can take these in turn. First mark, one, the church is one. The Catechism gives three reasons for the church's unity are in her source, her founder, and her soul. So the church is one because of her source, which is the Holy Trinity, which is a perfect unity of divine persons. Unitatio Redintegratio, which is the church's document on ecumenism, says that the oneness of the church has its highest exemplar and source in the unity of the persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit, one God. So the oneness of the Trinity is both the example and source of the Church's unity, the Trinity at work in the Church. And secondly, Church is one because of her founder, Jesus Christ, who came, as St Paul tells us, to reconcile all things by the blood of the cross. Jesus, in his preaching and in his anticipation of the crucifixion, says... I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So that's the unifying mission of Christ, which is inherited by his church. And then thirdly, the Catechism teaches the church is one because of her soul, the Holy Spirit who dwells in the souls of all the faithful and who unites all of the faithful into one community and one communion of believers and who guides the church. St. Paul talks about this. He talks about the unity of the Spirit. So this is in the letter of the Ephesians. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And again, Unitatis Redintegratios talks about um, this role of the Holy Spirit in the unity of the Church. It is the Holy Spirit dwelling in those who believe and pervading and ruling over the entire Church who brings about that wonderful communion of the faithful and joins them together so intimately in Christ. So again, the Holy Spirit, the soul of the Church bringing about unity. But I think it's also important to emphasise that this unity of the church is and has to be a visible unity, a unity that is visible to others. After all, when Jesus prays for the unity of the church, he prays for unity as a form of witness. He prays to God that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me. There's a purpose and a consequence to this, the disciples being united so that others may believe. It has to be visible. So it's not some vague, symbolic unity. It's not something under the surface, oh, we're all Christians really deep down. No, it is an outward, visible unity that by its very existence, its visible existence, brings others to faith. This is also why we speak of disunity and disagreement within the church as being what we call a scandal. And we're using the word scandal in its proper Catholic sense. That is, disunity, disagreement is a scandal, not because it's a, a, a social faux pas like washing your dirty linen in public. It is a scandal because it dissuades people from faith. Jesus warns us, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. It is a terrible sin to cause other people to walk away from faith, to walk away from the church. And open disunity is one of those things. Let them be one, says Christ, so that others may believe. Okay, so the second mark of the church is holiness. The church is holy. She is holy because Christ makes her so. This, we might add, is the case for all the marks of the church. As the catechism teaches, the church does not possess them, the marks, of herself. It is Christ who, through the Holy Spirit, makes his church one holy, catholic and apostolic. It's really worth emphasising this. The church doesn't somehow acquire these attributes like an efficient institution that is good at fulfilling its mission statement. No, the church has the marks, bite off, we might say her many failings, because of the will and the work of Christ himself. So it is with the holiness of the church. It is not that the church is holy by her own efforts. You know, Catholics are so good and virtuous that their church is good. No, the church is holy in spite of us all being sinful. The church is holy not because we make her so, but because Christ makes her so. Here's St. Paul again in the letter to the Ephesians. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ sanctifying the church and making her holy. Now some people, of course, do not see the work of Christ in sanctifying the church. Some people see rather more prominently the sins and defects of the members of the church, you and I, and bishops and cardinals. But this also can depend on what exactly you think the church is as a body. If you view the church as a secular institution, as a club, as a rule-giving body, you know, like, like the FA for the sport of football, or as a governing body like a parliament, if you view her as any of these secular models, it will distort your perspective of her. In fact, any secular model will not give you a true perspective of what the church is. Peter Kreeft, the Catholic philosopher, tells a story from Renaissance times of a man interested in converting to Catholicism, who lived in Paris, and who told the priest who was instructing him that before he converted, just to be sure he was making the right decision, he wanted to travel to Rome and see the Mother Church. The priest was actually terrified about this, because he knew just how corrupt and worldly and hedonistic was the culture in Rome, but the man he was instructing was determined, and off he went. Six months later, he was back, and he went to see the priest and said, Yes, I want to be converted. Any secular organization that is so badly run and so corrupt at this would not have lasted 15 days after the resurrection, let alone 1,500 years. God must be behind it all. Grace enabled that convert to see the holiness of the church. And we have to be careful not to lose that perspective ourselves. Part of preserving that faithful perspective is to make sure secular institutional ideas do not dominate our view of the church, and to make sure we see the church not simply as an institution, and a rather bad one of that, but to see the church in the fuller perspective of faith, as the mystical bride of Christ, sanctified by him and guaranteed by him. The gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Not because we as individuals are so good, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ does, because he has sanctified her. Okay, so the third mark of the church, the church is Catholic. The word Catholic, as you probably know, comes from the Greek Catholicos, and a lot of people will tell you that Catholicos means universal, and we have a universal church, and that's true, but it's not actually the primary meaning for the church. The Catechism reminds us that Catholicos has two associated meanings. The word Catholicos actually derives from the Greek word holos, uh, which means whole, which also gives us our modern word holistic. So we have two associated meanings of Catholicos. The first is wholeness, or totality, or fullness. The Catholic Church has the fullness of faith. The Catholic Church contains everything that Christ willed his Church to have. The totality of everything that has been passed down from Christ to his Apostles is contained, or subsists, which is the traditional word, in the Catholic Church. 
So other Christian traditions may contain parts of what Christ willed for his church, and they may practice those parts superlatively. They may well practice those parts better than Catholics. But only the Catholic Church possesses the fullness and the totality of what Christ wills for his church. The Catechism has a kind of simplified tick-box version of this, which says, In her, the Church, subsists the fullness of Christ's body united with its head. She receives from him the fullness of the means of salvation which he has willed. Correct and complete confession of faith, full sacramental life, and ordained ministry in apostolic succession. So you can take off the constituents of that fullness to check you're in the right place. Correct and complete confession of faith, tick. Full sacramental life, tick. And ordained ministry in apostolic succession, tick. And this concept of Catholicos's fullness uh, is a useful one for people who are converting to Catholicism from other Christian traditions because it enables them to see that there are good things in the tradition in which they might have been raised and we don't scorn the good things that are present in that tradition in which they have been raised but we can see that the fullness of faith, the Catholicos of faith, is only present in the Catholic Church. Then, of course, we have the second and perhaps better known meaning of the word Catholic, universal. Uh, the Catholic Church is the same everywhere because she has been sent by Christ to all nations. So she is visibly the same everywhere around the world. You can go to Mass anywhere in the world and know what is going on. It's also worth saying, perhaps, that she is the same everywhere, not just geographically, but also everywhere in time. She is the same across the ages. Uh, Lumen Gentium from the Vatican Council teaches that, that uh, reminding us that the Catholic Church is spread throughout the whole world and to all ages. It's always good to remember that we have brother and sister Catholics throughout the world, but also throughout the ages. And we pray and worship in the same way that our brothers and sisters might have done in the 3rd century or the 10th century or the 19th century, etc., etc. That leads us to the final mark of the church, the final landmark, which is that the church is apostolic. So obviously uh, a word that means related to the apostles, having a continuity with the first apostles. And again, the catechism describes this for us three ways in which this happens. Firstly, the Catholic Church is founded on the apostles. We might say, founded by Christ on the apostles. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So not founded by Martin Luther, or by Henry VIII, or by John Wesley, but founded by Jesus Christ on the apostles. Built, as St. Paul says in the letter to the Ephesians, built upon the foundation of the apostles. So that's number one, apostolic foundation. Number two is apostolic teaching. The Catholic Church faithfully hands on, with the help of the Holy Spirit, the teaching, what we call the good deposit, which he had received from the apostles. St. Paul says to Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. And to do that is to be Catholic, to hand on faithfully what has been entrusted to us by the apostles. 
And then number three is apostolic succession. Jesus entrusted his authority to his apostles, the first bishops, and this authority is then handed down through the sacrament of holy orders from bishop to bishop and then by extension to priests that they ordain. So our bishops can trace back their succession, their apostolic succession, right back to the first apostles. There's actually a website listing uh, just the last 500 years of this, so you can see who ordained who for the past 500 years, if you have a dark moment. For example, our own uh, Bishop Allen's Episcopal great-great-grandfather is Archbishop Giovanni Montini, who became Pope Paul VI. And our Bishop's Episcopal great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is Pope Pius X. Now, what this also means is that no bishop or priest in the Catholic Church is self-ordained or self-proclaimed. No bishop or leader in the Church that has ever made or declared himself a bishop. Rather, he has been called by the Church into apostolic succession. You can't just claim it yourself. So, uh, there you have three ways in which the Church is apostolic, founded on the Apostles, faithfully handing down apostolic teaching and possessing apostolic succession. And that is the last of our four marks of the church, the four landmarks that show us where we need to be. The church is one, holy, catholic and apostolic. And if you're not sure of your own journey of faith, those are the landmarks you need to look out for to help bring you home. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Do join me again next week for what will be, gosh, very nearly the last episode in this series as we look at the very last articles of the Creed. May God bless you all, and may he specially bless that journey of discovery we make into the beauties of the Catholic faith. Amen.